Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Our federal government actively went to court, spent your money, taxpayer money, this government went to court, spending your tax money to protect the privacy of Paul Bernardo. When did he do that? Just prior to his last parole hearing in 2021. They actively spent your money in order to, this is Parole Board and Correctional Service Canada, and federal lawyers went to court to protect Bernardo's privacy rights. And who were they protecting those privacy rights from? Good question, eh? Let's bring in Tim Danson, lawyer for the French and Mahaffey families. And I've known Tim for 35 years. I have nothing but the greatest respect for his work with victims of crime and, and their families in this country. And we'll talk about the cost of, of that and more as we go along. But Tim, so 2021, prior to the last parole hearing for Bernardo, and you told us last time, how much he enjoys the spotlight, the federal government of Canada went to court to protect his privacy rights from whom? Well, they were trying to protect his privacy rights from uh, the, the, the victims of, of, of Paul Bernardo and, and, and the public. Uh, but just, just to clarify, the, where this began is that the families brought an Access to Information Act request for the the, the records that Paul Bernardo was relying upon to persuade the parole board uh, to release him, to basically relieve him of the consequences of his life sentence. We were also, because the Toronto Police Association was involved in this proceedings, we were also asking for the same type of records for Clinton Gale, who murdered Police Constable uh, Todd Bayliss, and Craig Monroe, who murdered Police Constable Michael Sweet. And in all three cases, uh, the government uh, denied uh, our Access to Information Act request. And then we took them to court uh, to reverse that. And they opposed us uh, rigorously. Uh, and then when it, when the argument ends, the, the court asked, asked the parties about costs. And the government asked if they, if, if they were to succeed on the application, which they ultimately did, that they wanted the families to pay the government, 19000 dollars which was just, I mean, shameful and shocking. In, in all my experience, that just doesn't happen. But clearly, uh, the government is uh, weaponizing costs to frighten responsible Canadians from bringing important public interest litigation against the government before the courts. And uh, the judge, in the end, uh, lowered that to 4000 But any costs against the families... Uh, is simply outrageous when they're engaged in such important public interest uh, and public protection uh, litigation. And and even more shocking is that under the Access for Information Act, there's actually a provision uh, that uh, that even the government will pay the cost of the losing party because they wanted to encourage these kinds of applications. And um, and so there we had the cost order. We appealed it along with the merits. Uh, we argued the appeal uh, in January. We're still waiting for the decision. But on the eve of the, basically on the eve of the federal court of appeal, appeal, um, they knew that I was going to, to make a long story short, shame them in that position. And they were clearly concerned that this could prejudice their case. And so they walked it back and they waived the cost order. But they didn't do it for the right reasons. They did it for the wrong reasons, and it's deeply uh, concerning. And then there was another issue also equally involved, um, which I don't know if we have time to sure. get into it Sure, no, or take, not. take all the time you want. I beg your pardon? Take all the time you want. Well, there was another uh, thing that went on, which I find even more, uh, n- not only shocking, but I find it disgusting. Um, and that is um, often uh, important exhibits in a criminal trial find their way into the possession of Corrections Canada and the parole board. And uh, one of those exhibits, which we had a a ceiling order on, 
And ultimately, we think we had them all destroyed after uh, the case was over and the Supreme Court of Canada had concluded on the matter. Um, we also uh, destroyed the videotapes, all copies of the videotapes, crime scene pictures, autopsy pictures. We we destroyed everything. And um, we had a concern whether or not this exhibit, though, found its way. And this what this exhibit is, is a transcript of the videotape. So on one side of the page is a frame-by-frame -frame description of what you see on the videotapes. And on the other side of the page is the corresponding words that were spoken. It's a searing document. It was something that I needed to prepare early on in the proceedings when we were trying to prevent the media and certain authors to get access to these videotapes. Um, and um, we just wanted the Corrections Canada and the Pro Board to tell us whether or not they were in possession of that document. That's all we asked for. Corrections Canada, to their uh, the commissioner there, or the deputy commissioner, um, to their credit, answered our question and said, we do not have it. But the parole board said, we're not going to tell you whether we have it or not uh, because of Paul Bernardo's privacy interests. And, and this is filed in court. These are the, the, my, the letters are of public record. And we were outraged and we were saying, wait a minute, this is having an enormous uh, impact on, on the Frenches and the Mojaffes. If this document gets out, particularly in our Internet age, it is going to be horrific and all we want to know, we're not, all we want to know is whether you have it or not. And for five and a half years, they put the, the uh, families through hell. Excuse my language, but it was just awful. Uh, the anguish and the despair and the fear they had that this could possibly get out into the public and again violate their, 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 their daughter's, uh, uh, you know, images and, and, and reputation and memory and all of that. And again, uh, on the eve of the federal, uh, no, I'm sorry, at, on, at five o'clock, the day before we were before the, uh, in the federal court trial division, not the appeal division, five o'clock the day before, because they knew that we were going to make a big stink about this too, because it was so scandalous, so offensive to anyone who has any compassion uh, at all, uh, that we were going to expose this. And then at, so at the, literally the 11th hour, parole board advised us that they didn't have it. And my response, and I did say this to the Federal Court of Appeal, why did they have to put the families through five and a half years of hell uh, when, when all they had to tell us was they didn't have it? And how in God's name, excuse my language again, does Paul Bernardo have a privacy interest in the very videotapes where he's violating every conceivable human right, legal right imaginable and in, in a videotape, which is by itself child pornography, how can he have a privacy interest, which really exposes how bankrupt they are when they look at the privacy interests of these offenders? And when and just taking this back to the costs, when um, we were before Justice McVeigh in the first instance, um, I raised this issue as well, and that they and that the government should be punished in cost, but instead they awarded costs against uh, the family. So. This is unimaginable, and I'm sure for a lot of for, for a lot of your listeners, but for the fact that they're hearing this, they would say this is not possible. But unfortunately, it's exactly what happened. And they want to talk about victims' rights, being sensitive to victims' rights. You know, Tim, if I didn't know what the system is like and didn't feel viscerally and 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 have heard from victims and victims' family members many times over the years. Correctional Service Canada and the Parole Board appear to have the interest of the offender at heart and, uh, and, not, and not, not the victims, and not the victims' families. And this substantiates that five and a half years, the Parole Board would not let you know whether they had that extremely sensitive and horrifying information horrifying to the families that it might get out for five and a half years they refused to tell you whether they had it and they were protecting bernardo's privacy rights it is almost inconceivable but the more we hear and the more we're exposed to these organizations the less unlikely it starts to become that they would do this sort of thing it has to be stopped and, and I'm just concerned now. I know, I know you are, and, and you're so much closer to 
this than I could ever be, but we're all concerned about what's going to happen between now and November when, when Bernardo's parole hearing comes up. What else might happen? What other privacy rights? You know, what might you become aware of? And they wouldn't share it with you prior to the uh, parole hearing. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, we will have a ruling from the Federal Court of Appeal um, prior to that. And, you know, uh, I've been around long enough. You never, you don't know if you're going to win or you're going to lose. We put forward a very compelling case. And as I said to Roy, you and I have had this discussion many times. I, I, this is a, a deep principle that I believe in. If your cause is right, if your cause is just, uh, there's worse things than losing. And that's not trying. We don't expect to lose. We don't want to lose. Uh, we take nothing for granted. Uh, but we're not going to give up the good fight because it's a tough fight when you're taking on the government. I also think that, um, you know, these examples that I've just given you not only expose the moral bankruptcy of the government's interpretation of privacy acts under the, uh, under, under the Privacy Act, where, as we've discussed before, there is a statutory requirement for the government to do a proportional and principled analysis between the public interest, the right to know, the public's right to know um, how important public institutions are functioning, and the specific privacy rights of the individual in question, in this case, Paul Bernardo. And so the fact that they find in favor of the privacy interests of, of, of Paul Bernardo, it means that there is no circumstances ever where the public interest will trump the privacy interest, which renders that statutory, mandatory exercise null and void or nugatory. And I do believe that they that not only is there a favoritism towards the offender against the, the victims and the public interest, but I believe that the, the, the parole board and corrections uses that as a pretext to carry out their job in secrecy so they can never be held accountable. And that's why we must have transparency in our justice system. It's the only way that the public will have confidence in our justice system. And it's the only way that we can have a responsible and legitimate debate publicly as to whether we need legislative changes or whether our system is working properly or not. And what I don't understand is if the, if the institutions of the Corrections Canada and the Pro Board are so confident in what they're doing, then they should have no problem having absolute transparency and justify their position among the public. Maybe they'll convince the public. Maybe they won't, but that's what democracy and free speech is all about. Tim, uh, this is a small aside, but when both Bernardo and Homolka were in prison, they still had the right to vote, and they voted in their constituency of last residence, so St. Catharines. So Bernardo and Homolka could negate the votes of Duggan on French. That was just our system. I've, that's always stuck in my craw. It's not germane to what we're talking about now, but it's just one of those things that is so frustrating and so so wrong. But talk to us, what did the judge say when the judge decided for Bernardo's privacy rights and uh, sided with the government? And the government then wanted it their, <laughs> they wanted their court costs paid for by the families, almost $20,000. The judge lowered that, but still $4,000 directed toward the families. What did the judge say? Well, um, it, it, to make a long story short, um, there, was a, there was a significant constitutional challenge um, uh, on the basis that uh, parole hearings were public and the, therefore the open court uh, principle, which is protected by 2B of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, applies. And the judge found and this is before the now the Federal Court of Appeal, that notwithstanding that um, uh, parole hearings were public, uh, they, were, um, uh, uh, they were not quasi-judicial, which we reject, uh, but were rather non-adversarial and inquisitorial. Well, anyone who goes to these parole hearings and thinks they're non-adversarial is, is, is probably in the wrong room. And so, therefore, she found that the open court principle did not apply to uh, uh, court uh, to, to parole hearings. So, therefore, our whole, you know, transparency argument was uh, was dismissed. And she bought uh, the government argument that uh, that that these prisoners uh, were entitled to um, to their privacy protection 
and and to, for to rehabilitation. And th- this is what the problem is that they were there's we're we're talking we talk about Paul Bernardo and people like him. We're talking about we're talking about the worst of the worst. We're talking about sadistic sexual psychopaths. There is no cure for sadistic se- uh, sexual psychopathy. None. You will not find an expert in the world who will say otherwise. So the whole notion of rehabilitation is completely illusory. And so we're talking about, there's no slippery slope here. We're talking about maybe, maybe, Roy, one half of 1% of the prison population. We're not talking about the majority of of people who are serving time in jail. We're not talking about the majority who have fixed sentences and are going to get out. Where, of course, you're going to encourage you know, uh, uh, rehabilitation and and kind of decompressing them back into the community because they're going to get out anyways. That's what we're not talking about. But what they're doing and what the judge bought into is is putting all offenders, regardless of their offense and who they are, uh, into the same category. And that's a fundamental mistake. You know, so once you eliminate uh, the possibility of treatment and rehabilitation, the only principle, sentencing principle, and justice principle that should apply to people like Paul Bernardo is spending the rest of their life in a federal penitentiary, maximum security. We don't have capital punishment. I don't have a problem with that. But what's left is that those very small, unique, dangerous, uh, untreatable offenders should not be given any leniency other than what leniency is afforded in a maximum security federal penitentiary. Yevgeny Prigozhin and his mercenary Wagner group invading, as it were, from Ukraine, Russia. And they moved along very quickly, and they were not too far from uh, Moscow, I think uh, about about 200 kilometers, which is, what, about 120 miles. And, uh, yeah, and then suddenly he was gone. He was leaving. Now the word is that he's... uh, he may be in Belarus. I don't think he's been seen there yet. But Putin was going to drop any charges against him. And uh, they were also going to drop charges against the Wagner Group fighters, mercenaries. Some of them are really upset with Prigozhin. They feel they've been abandoned by him and have threatened to kill him. It's kind of an interesting group. Man. These people are just nuts. Um, it's, it's, it's alarming. It's, I mean, you can find any number of words. So how badly has this weakened Putin in Russia? When you look at the folks in in Rostov, a city of a million people, they welcomed the Wagner Group. They vel- welcomed Prigozhin. And they were waving to him as he was leaving yesterday. And then they got in the face of, uh, of Russian troops and Russian police and were very, you know, disrespectful. Yuri Felstinsky is a Russian-American historian. He's the author of Blowing Up Russia, quite a number of books uh, by Yuri. But your Blowing Up Russia was banned in Russia, and Felstinsky's, uh, Mr. Felstinsky's co-author, Alexander Litvinenko, died after being poisoned in London with a radioactive substance. A British inquiry, after five years, concluded the order to kill Litvinenko originated in the, in the Kremlin. Uh, Yuri, thank you for joining us. Are you surprised that uh, Prigozhin and the Wagner Group actually moved into Russia? Well, everybody was surprised, uh, to be honest. You will not find a person who would claim that he was expecting precisely this. What we are trying to understand now, actually, what was happening. And I think I do have a certain understanding of what was happening. And I think by now it's... uh, clear that this was an attempt by the FSB to take Putin down. We still do not actually know what is going on. What we do know that uh, Prigozhin moved from from Ukraine, where he was serving, uh, you know, in part of uh, Russian troops uh, in occupied uh, Ukrainian territories. Uh, very quickly started to proceed to Moscow without any resistance, without any attempts to stop him. In a process, he uh, shut down six 
Russian uh, military helicopters and one Russian military plane. Uh, and then suddenly when he was uh, near Moscow, well, not really near Moscow, 200 kilometers from Moscow, the, the entire distance from Rostov where he was staying until to Moscow is 1,000 kilometers approximately. Uh, when he knew that Putin left Moscow, and this is very interesting because Putin left Moscow together with Medvedev when it was just announced that Prigozhin is moving to Moscow. So he was far away and Putin already left. And uh, this is probably an indication that Putin knew that this is not actually Prigozhin who is trying to take him out. This is somebody else who is trying to take him out. And this somebody else might be only the FSB. Now, then suddenly Prigozhin stopped. It was announced that Lukashenko is conducting negotiations with Prigozhin, uh, that they uh, resolved the crisis, that Prigozhin is turning back. Uh, the criminal case, which was opened by the Russian government the moment Prigozhin started his revolt, was immediately dropped. It was announced that Prigozhin would be allowed to move to uh, Belarus. And it was announced that uh, Lukashenko actually was conducting negotiations. Now, it also was said that part of these negotiations uh, was with Patrushev. Nikolai Patrushev, former director of the FSB, uh, general secretary of the Security Council of the Russian Federation, was participating in those negotiations. And I believe that if Patrushev was involved, they would not need Lukashenko. Patrushev easily could talk directly to Prigozhin. Because Prigozhin, and this is very important, was a recruited FSB agent who was working uh, near Putin, being his cook, serving him food, giving him drinks. And the entire Wagner project is actually an FSB project from the very beginning. So again, Wagner Group, which is an FSB project led by Prigozhin, who is an FSB agent, was moving to Moscow to take Putin down. That's what was going on. Uh, in the middle of this you know, process, uh, a deal was reached between Patrushev and Putin. And it is clear that Lukashenko was involved in those negotiations, not because they were between Patrushev and Prigozhin, but because they were between Patrushev and Putin. Okay, let me now, ask you this. Let, let, let me just what, ask you this. Is, is Putin really significantly, and I mean significantly weakened now, as, as it reached the point where he's just not going to be able to remain president of the Russian Federation? They're going to have to either take him out or they're going to have to find another way for him to relinquish the role as president, which I doubt he would ever want to do. Well, clearly he doesn't want to do it. But w will it get to the point that he has no choice or they'll kill him? Well, uh, let's put it this way. The moment Putin left Moscow, he lost power. Uh, he knew that he's taken down and he was running for shelter. But now we do not really know how much of this power he lost and how much he was able to regain. We probably will see it within the next week or two. I think this is not over. This is just another stage or another act. Yeah. Uh, and this, this uh, you know, play uh, or, or film or whatever you would call it uh, will have continuation. Okay, you and I are going to talk more about this um, probably next weekend, I would imagine. But let, let me ask you just, just just very quickly this. The reaction of the people in the city of Rostov, uh, that really spoke volumes, didn't it? I mean, that that can't be uh, ignored by anybody in the, in the Russian power elite. Nothing was happening. What was happening would not be ignored. Number yeah. one, Moscow was in panic. Not only uh, Putin left which is a big deal. And once again, he left just when information came that Prigozhin is moving to Moscow. He was very far away. 
and there was not a single statement from a single member of the Russian government either in support of Prigozhin or in support of Putin. Mm-hmm. The, the statements which were made were made by, you know, secondary level officials. Uh, no one knew what to say. No one understand what was going on. There were tanks in Moscow. There were, uh, you know, armored uh, cars in Moscow. There were troops in Moscow. Moscow was in, in panic. Uh, Rostov, which you you mentioned, uh, presented a different picture. Uh, The population was instructed to sit inside and not to leave their houses. Indeed, the feeling was that the entire city went out to see what was going on. (laughs) They did. Not a single shot was fired. Not a a single person was hurt. Uh, It was quite well organized by we have to say this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there, there were, I, I do not really know whether this was an entirely friendly crowd, maybe not entirely, but again, there were no incidents uh, reported. And uh, at the same time, there were crowds at the train station right. trying to leave the city. 38 years ago today, 329 people boarded Air India Flight 182. Most of them were Canadian citizens. More than 80 of them were young children. Some were parents, others friends, many leaders who had spent their entire lives giving back to their communities. In an act of pure evil, these great Canadians were stolen from us. They were murdered by vicious cowards who destroyed Flight 182 in an attempt to spread fear and division through terrorism. Yes, June 23rd, 1985. The deadliest terror attack involving Canada and Canadian citizens. And as Pierre Polyev said in that clip, here we are 30 years, 38 years later, and the Angus Reid Institute reports that today 61% of Canadians have little knowledge of the terrorist attack, while 28% have no knowledge, and 58% of Canadians under the age of 35 have never heard of the bomb attack on the airliner, and the deadliest terror attack in Canada's history. My guest and my friend, Ujal Dessange, was booked on that flight with his family, but they cancelled their reservations just days earlier. This was before Ujal Dessange became an MLA in British Columbia in 1991. Fifteen years later, he was elected premier of the province and in 2004 was elected a federal liberal MP in the Paul Martin government where he became federal health minister. Ujjal Dessange's autobiography is titled Journey After Midnight, India, Canada and the Road Beyond. Ujjal, thank you very much for for taking the time. What are your thoughts on, uh, what were your thoughts on June 23rd, last Friday, on the 38th anniversary of that terrible attack on the Air India flight. What were you thinking? Well, my thoughts go back to how um, we failed um, these individuals, people who perished um, in the flight, or the two who perished at the Tokyo Narita Airport. Um, We failed them because we um, didn't pay attention uh, to the warnings that were coming, that, that something was... Um, uh, remiss and that uh, there may be a terror attack or attacks happening. Um, the, the RCMP, the thesis, at least uh, in its infancy, uh, knew about some of them and they didn't take them seriously. And in fact, they had uh, weeks earlier um, seized uh, 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 following these individuals who eventually executed this attack. Um, I, I still don't know the reason why they did that. Um, so that thought comes to mind. And then what happened afterwards? Unfortunately, no one really adopted this tragedy other than the families that were left behind to mourn their losses. Um, because, um, because we didn't really believe that, um, that we'd lost Canadians because uh, they had names that 
weren't Smith or Jones or something else. Um, they were brown. And uh, the prime minister of the country at the time uh, uh, wasn't told uh, enough uh, about this being a Canadian tragedy. So he picked up the phone and and called uh, the prime minister of India to condole the deaths of Indians. Um, so I I think that, that all around we failed them uh, before and after. And in part of the reason why this tragedy hasn't uh, registered as much or as seriously as it ought to have been in the minds of Canadians in the historical sort of uh, <clears throat> sense of Canadians, uh, consciousness of Canadians, because because we didn't really treat it serious seriously until several years later, when uh, there was an inquiry. Justice Major did the inquiry under Harper government and uh, brought perhaps uh, a, a minuscule. Uh, you know, uh, essence of closure. Um, but I think that if you talk to the families, uh, they still shed tears and they still say that there's been no closure because we haven't been able to successfully prosecute anyone except the chap who put together the bombs. And here we are, 38 years later, 60, 61% of Canadians have little knowledge of the attack, 28% have no knowledge. And 58% of Canadians under the age of 35 never even heard of the bomb attack on the airliner, which, again, is the deadliest terror attack in Canada's history on Canadians. Absolutely. And I, I think partly that's because that's because the public leadership. You know, I think Paul Martin attended uh, a memorial in Ireland um, off the uh, coast. Um, and um, and uh, I think Mr. Harper attended a memorial once. Um, you know, I was speaking publicly at the memorial in Vancouver and I raised it seriously, not to politicize the issue, but I said, you know, did the governor general of our country go to one of the memorials today? Did the prime minister of our country go to one of the memorials today? Because if the, if the leadership of the country adopts the tragedy as its own, as a Canadian tragedy, then people notice that and then people begin to pay, pay more attention and take it more seriously. And I think it really hasn't happened too often in our history. You and your family were booked on that flight. I, I was booked on that flight because I wanted to take my three sons to India. They hadn't been to India. They were born and raised here. They were young. Uh, um, uh, one of them uh, was, uh, I think the eldest was... Uh, I, uh, 11, I think, or 12. Uh, they weren't even in their teens. Um, and my brother, who, or my older brother, who lives in Canada, uh, he kept harassing me uh, to stop the journey and not go because he said that, you know, it's really hot at that time in, in India and you'll be killing my nephew. He, he kept telling me, uh, don't do this, don't go. And so finally, you know, he was my older brother and he was doing it out of concern for my children. And I listened to him. That's how I got off. So you went on a, on a trip across Canada by car instead? Uh, yeah, it was because a couple of days after, I think day after or two days after the Air India uh, tragedy, um, I was packing up to go across Canada because I had booked this time off for myself and my, my children. And uh, and a couple of cops uh, drove uh, up to my van as I was packing, saying, you know, get out of uh, Vancouver for a while uh, because we heard chatter on the phone that they were going to try and get you next. And, and that, um, yeah, that was one of the reasons that you that you also uh, didn't take that flight because you had been targeted and you've been very badly beaten uh, prior yes, to that uh, situation. Yes, I, I had been, I had been, but, but that's, I had no inkling that, uh, they were targeting a plan. Subsequently after, uh, that they were targeting a plane, um, subsequently afterwards, I heard that there had been some people speaking at the temple, uh, Ross temple, uh, in Vancouver saying boycott air India. It's an Indian entity. Uh, don't travel air India. Um, so, you know, I, uh, later on one can sort of try and put two and two together, but prior to that, I had, no one had any, any inkling this was coming down. Do you think 
Coming back to the issue of the general lack of awareness in this country about Flight 182, do you think it still has to do with race and uh, and names? Roy, I'm I'm unfortunately I'm of the view that it it had to do with race at the time. Um, not many Canadians paid any attention. I I genuinely believe that they thought these are some brown guys fighting over something that happened 15,000 miles away. Some of them wear turbans and they speak different languages. Uh, and uh, and uh, I think that uh, they only began to take it seriously um, once the Air India plane went down. And obviously now we know even then they couldn't take it as seriously as they ought to have because uh, a CSIS uh, destroyed the tapes of all of the wiretaps they had uh, taken down. Um, whether it was done inadvertently or make space for something, one doesn't know. So, you know, why would you be so uh, cavalier with uh, such an important uh, 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 pile of information such as the wiretap uh, uh, tapes? And, uh, and that's what happened. And, and that sort of uh, the blunders continued. Uh, later on, the RCMP obviously became a lot more conscious. They hired uh, people who spoke the language, knew the culture, and they tried to get to it. But then, obviously, we now know it, it was too late to uh, have a really successful prosecution. It's it's an integral part, an integral part of contemporary Canadian history, and we 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 need to acknowledge this and understand it. And we, we cannot adopt the, uh, well, I don't know, and I don't care. And, uh, you know, what's somebody, I, I like to say to people, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? I don't know, and I don't care. Um, but we can't afford this. This is a very, very serious. Well, we, well absolutely. We can't afford to ignore it. And, uh, and the question that I rhetorically raised at the memorial where I spoke on the 23rd was, you know, would Biden... Uh, not attend um, the uh, commemoration of uh, the victims of 9/11, um, something as serious as that. And that's not not that this is our 9/11. This is our largest mass murder in Canadian history. Yeah. And uh, if we don't uh, if we don't uh, allow it the the gravity and the seriousness in the way we approach it, then. Uh, then ordinary Canadians can be forgiven for not paying attention. Who was the most senior? member of government, federal government, to attend this year? Uh, I have no idea. I know that the Prime Minister issued a letter um, and other other um, party leaders issued um, um, statements. Um, I have not, it has not been reported that anyone attended a memorial. Wow. Um, message sent, hopefully delivered and understood. Ushal, can you stay with us a few minutes longer? I'd like to ask you about what's going on in this country with, with the politics in, in Canada. Parliament has just uh, taken its early recess for the summer break. And it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I'm talking to you as a former member of Parliament. But when, there's un- when you need unanimity to get a, a few extra days off, there's unanimity in our Parliament. <laughs> unanimity to take time off? Yeah. Well, it I was mean, like I, I, it was like I, when they had a vote on increasing the pension plan for MPs. There was unanimity. Oh well, there you are. I mean, you know, nothing. There's nothing, nothing um, as important as self-interest, is it? <laughs> <laughs> but I want to ask you about your assessment of what's going on with politics in this country now. Sure. All right, please, because you know I've said to you many times, if I need a a voice of reason and understanding, I always call on you. So. I'm not so sure about that. Well, no, I to told you it. that. And I've also told you that if you decide to run politically again, I'll fly out to BC and I'll campaign with you. That may be more of a hindrance than a help, but I'd be there. <laughs> Thank you. As you look at the political environment in this country now, you look at all of the... I mean, it's not like they hate each other. It's like they want to get into a, into, um, you know, into a cage fight. We know that the tech giants want to get into a cage fight. But uh, would you would you be interested? Would you be today? Would you feel energized to get into into the political arena federally? Not really. 
Um, I, you know, part of that is because been there, done that, and and time to kind of move on. Um, also, I'm I'm noticing. You know, I think it's it's been happening with every generation of politicians. I've been noticing that the politics is uh, becoming um, a, a lot nastier uh, than it used to be, even in my time. And uh, and uh, all you hear are accusations and counter accusations, and you don't hear great debates or, or great ideas. Uh, um, you know, you hear um, uh, speeches that polarize people. Obviously, polarizing is important for politics, but polarizing uh, not necessarily on great issues of our time, but on uh, mundane issues of our time. And that, I think, does injustice um, um, uh, to, to Canada, to Canadians. Um, and I have no desire to go back into uh, electoral politics. I was elected for over 17 years in in BC, uh, and and uh, of course federally. Um, it, it 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 is true that in British Columbia, uh, you know, you are closer to the people if you are in provincial politics. You are even closer to the people if you are in civic or municipal politics. And when you're in Ottawa, people have this sense that Ottawa is too far away, uh, too sort of isolated uh, from the rest of Canada. Um, and people have that feeling and the, and, the, and the great distance between it and uh, various ends of Canada uh, lends uh, itself uh, to that belief, that perception, um, and takes a lot of time to travel back and forth. I... In seven years, I was the MP um, from British Columbia. I think I must have spent no, no more than seven weekends uh, in Ottawa. I always traveled back, and that takes a toll on people who are from far-flung areas of the country. And um, so all of that adds uh, to the perception that, that Ottawa is somewhat removed. And the so- other thing, you know, I, I'm so fond of saying now because I notice it, I... Not to criticize any sitting leaders uh, of the parties. Uh, you know, you don't have uh, uh, the great leaders of yesterday who argued about ideas. And, you know, even even Joe Clark, uh, who was uh, who had a short-lived uh, prime ministership, uh, you know, his image is one of always arguing sense, always arguing uh, ideas. And not um, not arguing personalities, uh, and not polarizing people on the dumbest issues, uh, but uh, talking about the great issues of the day. Um, and you know, I mean, people disagree with uh, older Trudeau, but you know, he had great ideas, and uh, and obviously there were people who didn't like him. That some ideas weren't that great, but he had very strong beliefs and and argued those beliefs and. And stood for them, and I and I we don't have. I'm not suggesting it should it should be leaders like him, but they should have the courage of their convictions to stand up and be heard and be counted. And it seems to me that we have uh, very little of that in the um, federal leadership today, even in the provincial leadership today. Yeah, it's. I I don't think I've ever said this on the air, but I've said it privately to friends. It's like politics of opportunism. If an opportunity arrives where you can denigrate or slash your opponent or just gain some points, take it because that's what it's about. It's about winning. It's not about leading anymore, and that's not good for no. the country. It's not good. No, it, it, it's not debating great ideas. It's no. not, you know, you may disagree with Trudeau, but it's nobody arguing do. with just society or something like that. Let me just, let me just reach for politics of opportunism. I do disagree with Trudeau. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Jolly, I, it's it's always a pleasure. It's always a real Good pleasure to talk to you. to you. Thank you so much. I decided that I would take the prime minister at his word. I trusted him. I had confidence in him. And so I decided to continue on around the cabinet table with the concerns that I had around SNC because I took the prime minister at his word. Jody Wilson-Raybould on this program talking to us about SSZ Lavlan and the uh, scandal that resulted. And Mr. Trudeau steadfastly declaring that he had never interfered, never interfered with the uh, then Attorney General. 
and Justice Minister, Ms. Wilson-Raybould, never interfered over the SNC-Lavalin case, looked in the cameras and said, what was he said? Globe and Mail had the story initially. He said, the Globe and Mail report today is false. No, no, it wasn't. No, it was not. In fact, the Prime Minister's very own personally selected Ethics Commissioner, Mario Dion, and the Prime Minister is not allowed to select, by law, the Ethics Commissioner, the opposition parties, by parliamentary law, have to be involved. His own personally selected Ethics Commission found him guilty of ethics violation, uh, violation of the Conflict of Interest Act in this particular case. So, enter Democracy Watch. And Democracy Watch has wanted information, demanded information in the background, the information on whether or not the RCMP was involved in a investigation of potential obstruction of justice involving the Prime Minister and or members of the Liberal government's cabinet. Duff Conacher is the co-founder of uh, Democracy Watch. He joins us on the Roy Green Show. Duff, so you received confirmation from the from the, the RCMP that they were investigating and then you received or they released another report saying they hadn't been investigating for months so they're talking out of both mouth, the sides of their mouth at the same time yes and uh, they corrected themselves but uh, the big question is how is it possible that in response to an access to information request they sent a letter to Democracy Watch dated May 25th that said an on investigation was ongoing. And yet, as it turns out, um, the investigative unit of the RCMP completed and concluded the investigation in January. So the access to information branch was four to five months out of date. And there's still lots of questions about how that happened. They've only issued the uh, statement that the May 25th letter that the RCMP sent to Democracy Watch was incorrect. I say it was incorrect. You know, there's accuracies expected from an organization like the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And when they're replying to a free access of information request and tell you that uh, the, the uh, uh, investigation is underway, and then release a statement saying, no, actually it ended four months before we sent that particular letter. That's not good enough to say, oh, sorry, mistake, no. You need to know what the situation is. So, also, then tell us, please, what's going on with the uh, with the, the the pages of information they sent you. Most of them were pages with not information. Yes, they sent ninety six pages along with the May twenty fifth letter, and eighty six of them were fully redacted, meaning blank. Uh, and the reason given was that this matter is currently under investigation. Well, it turns out that's not true. And so the RCMP has said that within 90 days after reviewing the documents again, and maybe some other documents now, that hopefully they'll actually do a proper uh, review of all their records, and maybe there are more, some more records in there about the investigation, and then they'll uh, get them to us within 90 days. So uh, hopefully we'll get a full investigative investigation report, um, which the public has a right to when the RCMP completes investigation within 90 days. In other words, by uh, around mid to late September. So they sent you 96 pages. 86 of them were redacted. And they were redacted because they were conducting the, inf the, the, uh, the investigation into obstruction of justice. But at the same time, <clears throat> they must have should have known this, that the investigative branch had concluded the investigation in January. So there was no need to redact any of that information. And yet, are, are they going to provide you with this now, or do you have to wait 90 days? 90 days. They're saying they have to review it, uh, and it doesn't make sense. They gave one reason for not disclosing the 86 pages. That was the matters currently under investigation. And there's an exemption in the Access to Information Act for a good reason. You don't want to tip off people who are being investigated uh, when an investigation is going on. So um, that's fine. But to take 90 days to review it again, there's no review needed. They decided the reason why it couldn't be redacted, and that reason was false. So I'm not sure why they're delaying further. 
Uh, and we are going to, uh, we're filing an access to information request to find out what happened to our access to information request. I mean, this is an, must be an investigation unit document, these 86 pages about the investigation. And so that's what's so boggling is to try and figure out how is it that the investigative unit would have known that they had given 86 pages to the access to information branch to disclose, but not told the access to information branch, hey, the investigation's over, you can disclose these. Um, it just, it's amazing that one arm of the RCMP would be four to five months out of date in terms of the activities of another arm of the RCMP. And that's why we're going to try and dig into it and, and find out what's going on. And also, hopefully, the investigation report will be <clears throat> complete. We're also asking for details. When did the investigation begin? That's never been clear. Who was investigated? How many investigators? How much time did they spend? And hopefully that's all going to come out with uh, this package of documents um, by mid to late September. Almost hard to believe, isn't it, that uh, this could happen? Hard to believe that the investigation was not concluded till January 2023. That's true. The Ethics Commissioner's report and the Ethics Commissioner talked to everybody that uh, they could find in terms of um, documentation of, uh, you know, Jody Wilson-Raybould and her staff were very clear about who had spoken to them, who had pressured them, and the Ethics Commissioner talked to them all and issued a, a full report, 68 pages, on uh, in August 2019. So then three and a half years later, the RCMP takes three and a half years to complete their investigation. I mean, there better be a lot in there and what they disclosed to us because that's a pretty long investigation. Must have done a lot of digging into other things. Or did they do nothing for three and a half years? And when we filed the access information request last July, said, oh, boy, we better get going and make it seem like we've done something here so that uh, we have something to disclose to them. I don't know. It's, we'll, we'll hopefully find out exactly what happened when the investigation started how many people were on it from the RCMP, how much time they spent investigating, who they investigated, what did they look at, all the details. And uh, we'll see whether they're finally going to be transparent and accurate. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.